Hello, welcome to episode 53 of Scuttlebutt. I am Nick. I'm here with William. Howdy. Here with Nancy. Hi. Today we have Dr. Larry Burke in the house, curator at the National History Museum, aviation curator at the National Museum of Marine Corps History, um, of the Marine Corps. History. National Museum of and the Marine Corps. It's MMC. And MMC. And MMC. I said M twice. <laughs> the point is. <laughs> this is going off to a great start already. <laughs> welcome, Larry. Yeah, Thank welcome, you. Larry. Thank you. Um, before we uh, jump into your background, Larry, I just wanted to say that I was doing trivia last night and I wasn't good at it, so I'm in a brain fog anyway. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. All right. <laughs> Dr. Burke, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. So as you said, I, I am currently at the National Museum of the Marine Corps as the aviation curator, and uh, we can get into exactly what that means a little bit later. Um, my academic history, I've got an undergraduate in science and technology studies from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Um, listeners to your podcast might also be interested to know that I did do uh, Navy ROTC there, although I was not uh, commissioned and uh, neither here nor there. Um, but uh, went on, worked at uh, a couple of museums down in the Norfolk area um, and uh, uh, North Carolina as well, North Carolina State Museum for a while. Which uh, museums? Uh, so I, I started out volunteering at, um, and they've, they've changed the name a couple of times, and every time they change it, they kind of shuffle the order. I think it's now just the Virginia War Museum. Oh, cool. Over in Newport News. Yep. Oh, nice. um, I went to school right there. And then, uh, yeah, I also had a, a contract working with the Hampton Roads Naval Museum. Oh, nice. Um, and then that, that led to a um, short-term contract with uh, North Carolina State Museum of History, uh, when they were moving buildings, if anyone in the area remembers that. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, went to a master's degree in museum studies at George Washington University here in D.C. Um, and then uh, eventually to uh, Carnegie Mellon University, where I eventually got my Ph.D. in history and public policy. Um, Along the way, I had uh, various internships. Um, after graduating, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, where I was uh, teaching in the history department, um, and uh, got a job from there at the National Air and Space Museum, where I was their first ever named curator of naval history, uh, which did include Marine Corps aircraft as well. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, we got the job here at, uh, at Quantico, um, and that pretty much brings us up to date. Very cool. And how long have you been at the museum here at Quantico? I've literally been here just over a year. Just a year. I, th I think my one-year anniversary was Monday, maybe. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, congratulations. Right. Happy yeah. anniversary. Thank you. Well, I'm, a, I'm an aviation junkie. Um, also a naval aviation junkie. I got my start working at the Naval Aviation Museum Foundation, which is a part of the National Museum of Naval Aviation in Pensacola, Florida. And it had a huge impression on me. I had no interest. I'm, I'm a submariner's daughter, so naval aviation had no interest for me growing up. But then um, 
I, I was sort of bitten by the bug. Being in that museum every day and talking to the, the men who flew the aircraft and learning the history of them, it just really, um, it, it was fascinating and compelling. So I'm curious, tell us about what led you to naval aviation and specifically Marine Corps aviation. <coughs> Um, yeah, so that, that is kind of a long road, and, um, you know, I, I guess it's just one of those things that, that growing up I thought uh, airplanes were cool, um, had an interest in the Navy specifically, um, and, uh, you know, at, at one point I wanted to be an astronaut, and I had my whole career planned out. I was going to do, you know, Navy ROTC, get a degree in uh, uh, aeronautical engineering, uh, fly for the Navy, go into the astronaut corps from there. Um, and uh, that, that was my plan. Uh, didn't go so well. <laughs> Plans are funny that way, Plans aren't they? Plans are funny. Yeah, I turned out not to be really good at a lot of things you need for engineering. Um, math? It, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm not very good at math either. Uh, I, I stumbled through. I, I hit a hard wall with uh, partial differential equations. Uh, as well as a number of other things that semester, which led to me changing my major. Um, and at, at that point, I, I really kind of stumbled into science and technology studies, um, which was, you know, I, I realized I was, I was interested in the courses, and I was also lucky that I could switch to that major and still graduate in time. <laughs> Yeah, but well, you wouldn't be the first one to hit a wall at differential equations. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I don't even know what that means. I I started as a journalism major, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> yes, yes. No, yeah, it it wasn't great, but partial diff EQ was that was the limit. Yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I mean that that took me down a turn towards history. Um, you know, and as I said, I I was in Norfolk and, uh, you know, need, needed to get out of the house, started volunteering at um, uh, Virginia War Museum and uh, said, you know, hey, this is really interesting stuff. Um, so you started off with your bachelor's degree in a more STEM field and then you transitioned with a master's in museum studies, eventually gaining a PhD in history. How did you decide to want to focus more from STEM to humanities and then what skills did you bring along understanding, I guess, the more technical components of aviation and then bring that along to where you are now? Uh, yeah, so as, as I said, you know, I, I found that there were a lot of engineering courses. I had a semester, just really did not do well and had to, had to switch over. Um, and one of the things that, that really intrigued me about the, the Science and Technology Studies program is that it was looking at the ways in which um, you know, those, those STEM fields interact with society. Um, and uh, that, you know, the, the engineering background that I did pick up has certainly influenced me going forward. Um, you know, having that uh, sort of deep, you know, deeper understanding of some of the technical issues uh, that, you know, crop up in the research from time to time. Um, and... Uh, you know, that just kind of led me down um, this path towards, okay, you know, yeah, maybe maybe history is something I want to do. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, I had been volunteering and, and gotten some uh, short-term contracts with museums 
um, led me to the museum studies program. Um, and then, uh, you know, later on I found myself in a position where I, I was interested in going back to school and thought, well, let me, let me pursue the PhD. One of the things they had uh, emphasized to us at the, the, certainly at the GW program, um, was that that was, that was not a program if you wanted to be a curator. That was a program that was basically training everyone else in the museum. So the, the registrar's collections managers, um, uh, you know, governance. Um, all the other sort of ancillary, you know, I don't know if I want to call it ancillary, uh, but the, the other things going on. And they said, if you want to be a curator, this is not your program. You should go get your PhD in whatever it is you want to curate. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was one of those things that, um, you know, I, I had come through with training as a, a collections person and a, a registrarial background. And I knew that a lot of museums are small enough that they don't need a full-time registrar. And, uh, you know, again, this was something that they, they told us in the program. Um, so I had been thinking, okay, well, if, if I want to be an even more attractive employee for a small museum, let me go back and get the PhD, and then I can be that, that kind of double hat. Um, as opposed to, I think historically at least, in a lot of cases, you get curators come in and suddenly find themselves having to do registrarial things and sort of learning on the job or trying to hurry up and get a, a, a certificate or something. Um, so uh, that, that kind of led me down the path to the PhD. So your PhD, was that one with the thesis that you had to defend in history and public policy? Yes. Do you mind uh, telling <coughs> us what your thesis was on? <laughs> uh, so my, my thesis uh, was titled What to Do with the Airplane, um, U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, uh, and, and aviation, and I, it's been long enough, I'm, I'm not sure I'm remembering the, the title exactly, um, but uh, basically covering the period from about, you know, the, the, the Wright Brothers' first flight demonstration in 1908 through, um, you know, the, the original plan was to go through uh, the Air Corps Act of 1926, um, right. and uh, as a, a convenient stopping point, which definitely needed to be stopped. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it is a long thesis. I, I talked to a friend in, uh, in the UK where they've got uh, word limits, and I had chapters that were longer than his allowed Ow. dissertation length. Wow, man. Um, but, um, yeah, so I was, I was looking at this issue of, um, you know, what, what the three services at the time, because of course the Air Force doesn't exist until mm -hmm. 1947, um, what, how, how they went from, you know, uh, 1906, man will never fly, to, uh, you know, what, what we have today, um, and, you know, the sort of opening question in my mind was, okay, how did they convince Congress to spend money on these things? Ooh, that is that is interesting. You know what what did it take to get that that first congressional appropriation? Well, to put you on, on the spot, then, like, what was your argument to that question that you that you came up with? Um, so, I mean, that that was that was a starting point, and the the dissertation actually grew broader, which was the the question of how did the services use airplanes what was that 
uh, sort of operational level doctrine of, you know, how how are they going to use airplanes? How would they integrate airplanes into the existing forces or existing plans to fight wars and that sort of thing? So on the on the narrow question of uh, how did they justify it to Congress, um, the Army was the first one to move, as I said, in, in 1908. Um, and they were actually able to fund that through money that they already had through a, an organization in the Army called the Board of Ordnance and Fortification, which had been created for entirely different reasons, but um, by 1907, 1908, uh, had become sort of the Army's clearinghouse for technically, you know, basically Ar Army was getting letters from inventors left and right, and the Army was like, we, we don't really have anyone, we, we don't have any way of dealing with these things. Um, We've got this Board of Ordnance and Fortification, which is already doing some technical stuff because they were looking at, at, um, at, you know, ordnance and fortification. So, you know, weapons, uh, particularly coastal defenses, so, you know, big guns, um, forts, and anything that might go along with that. And it just sort of crept, you know, mission creep um, to, okay, well, these, these guys are already dealing with some of these issues. We'll just keep passing stuff off to them. Um, and so, you know, they saw um, a use to being able to have a, a person in the air to be able to look down on the battlefield uh, or the coastline. And uh, that, that initial purchase of the Wright Brothers airplane was made through money that they had for research and funding of new inventions. Interesting. How much of that was looking inward, and how much of that was like looking at Europe and kind of seeing what was? Uh, it was well, it was almost entirely inward. Um, so my my dissertation, and I I did take the the first half of the dissertation up to uh, April nineteen seventeen when the mm -hmm. U.S. Uh, enters the First World War. Um, I, I did start both. I have a little introduction dealing with uh, Samuel Langley, who in right. 1898 was the, a respected scientist uh, and, and um, chair of the Smithsonian at that point. And he had become interested in the issue of mechanical flight and had actually succeeded in flying um, what we might call drones or UAVs today. Um, couple of, of small, his term was aerodrome, um, and I say small, these were about 13-foot wingspan and maybe 20 feet long. Yeah, that was right down the road here. It was Yes, yeah. it was actually right down here uh, off the mouth of the, the creek, um, mm -hmm. and uh, so he had... He had been experimenting with these, and one of the, one of the reasons that the Board of Ordnance and Fortification existed was because of increasing tensions in uh, sort of the, the late 1880s, early 1890s between the U.S. and Spain, looking at the Caribbean. Uh, and so that was what got the Army thinking about, okay, do we need to upgrade our coastal defenses? Um, because the Army was responsible for coast defense out to the limits of shore-based guns, and that becomes significant later on in the aviation story. But... Um, in 1898, uh, 1897, 
it's looking increasingly like that war is going to happen, and the the DOF Board of Ordnance and Fortification um, is starting to look at things that that might help in the upcoming war. And this is the point where um, Langley succeeds in getting connections through the White House to the BOF, um, and they review his previous successes and say, okay, yeah, we, we think he's got the knowledge and expertise to scale this up to the point where it can carry a person um, and could be of use to the U.S. So in that sense, they, they were not really looking at, at Europe per se, but at that um, you know ever closer war with Spain and you know, of course, ultimately the war happens and it's over so quickly. Um, they they barely got time to give yeah. him the money to get started again. Um, and uh, you know, he is not he he doesn't have something ready to demonstrate until uh, 1903. And he knows it's not completely ready. It's not really controllable. But he figures if he can demonstrate, because he's run through. All of the money that the BOF gave him, which was a, a total of about well, a total of fifty thousand dollars, and then I think it was another twenty-eight thousand in um, Smithsonian money, and he he's run out of funding and figures if I if I if I'm going to get more, I've got to demonstrate some sort of success. So he figures if he can even just demonstrate that his great aerodrome can fly with a person, carry a person. Um, long, you know, flying a straight line, uh, then that will kick off the money to let him get, uh, you know, develop actual controllability, and uh, so he he's kind of in a corner. Uh, that ends up failing twice spectacularly. Once again, uh, just off uh, Quantico here, um, and then the the second time is even worse because it's up in the mouth of the um, Anacostia. Um, where you know Congress comes where everybody down to can see, see it, yeah, Oops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, this this thing um, comes off the launcher and you know flaps like a dead duck uh, straight into the water. His his pilot almost drowns, um, and uh, yeah, this this is the uh, you know the the, the news story of the day um and it, he's absolutely excoriated in congress uh you know you get the uh one of the one of the congressmen saying you know oh, what's next we're gonna start building houses starting with the roof uh you know and other <laughs> similar unlikely things and you know you again you've got these arguments coming out that um i, I think it was just earlier that year some a uh, physicist or mathematician had done equations and said, you know, proven, quote, proven that, uh, you know, man will never fly. It's physically impossible. Um, you know, and then, of course, you, you get this thing where just a couple of weeks, at, a couple of weeks later, uh, no, the Wright brothers quietly succeed in doing this uh, down in North Carolina. They yeah. sure did. And they had his original, from his drones, they had his original, like, math worked out to help him get started, right? Like um, that's, that's the that's the story. I don't know how true it is. I guess, but yeah. So I mean, they you know they they did write to the Smithsonian when they decided they were going to start doing this and said, you know, can can you please send us anything you've got on this? 
And um, so I, I don't know off the top of my head how much information they actually got from Langley himself. Um, I, I do recall reading that um, as they were doing their experiments, they realized that some of the information, some of the equations, some of the constants they had been given were wrong. Mm -hmm. um, That's why so they, they made their own air uh, wind tunnel, right? Wind tunnel, yeah. right. Uh, yeah, they, they had to go back and, and sort of refigure some of these constants. Um, but it was also this thing where they, they were doing, um, oh, I forget the technical name for it, but you know, you, you do an experiment, you, you pick one variable, you change it by a set amount, you run the experiment again, you change that variable by another set amount, you run the experiment again. And when you're done, you see what, as what that variable, what impact that has on your results. And then, you know, if you graph that for, you know, whatever you're looking for, you can say, aha, okay, this is the best place to go. Um, and, they, you know, they can sort of interpolate mm -hmm. between data points um, to figure out, you know, where is the, the most advantageous place to put this variable. Um, and so, they, you know, they're, they're doing that. But one of the points was that they did actually have to do a lot of their own work. They really couldn't rely um, on things which had been done, been done before. Um, you know, I, I think it was uh, um, Gustav Eiffel who had done a lot of research because he was interested in aerodynamics because how is the wind going to affect my tower, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that gets built in, in Paris. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are other uh, engineers at the time who were sort of working around aeronautics for the same reason. Um, Octave Chanute, who is uh, uh, a big name in aviation research uh, internationally, but especially in the U.S., he's based here in the U.S., uh, he gets into this looking at um, bridges and, again, how, you know, how will high winds affect particular construction, uh, but also locomotives. So 1860, 1870, Steam engines are getting faster and faster. Mm -hmm. uh, you know how is how is wind resistance affecting them? Um, and so you know there is this this massive research that's being drawn from, um, and uh, I I seem to recall that, that one of the constants was actually set by Gustav Eiffel, and everyone else has just been using this. And the Wright brothers finally realized. Our experiments make no sense if this constant is correct, and so they go back and, and look at that constant and, and um, you know end up getting a, a more accurate value for that. That's interesting. I yeah. had no idea. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. But now we need to fast forward a little bit back to yes. the <laughs> back to the naval aviation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um. so so let's let's actually jump way ahead, and we okay. can backtrack later if we want to. Let's talk about specifically some of the aircraft and aviation memorabilia in the collection at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Do you have any favorites? And favorite pieces, favorite airplanes, or any favorite colorful characters from Marine Corps aviation, of which there are many? There, there are many. Uh, there, there are many potential favorites in the collection and uh, I, I really have a hard time nailing anything down um, I, I, I do have a soft spot for um, the EA6B Prowler 
Um, mainly because I, I got so involved with that. That was one of the aircraft that I collected for the Air and Space Museum. Um, and just got deep into the history of, of the Prowler and particularly Marine Corps aviation and developing that mission of uh, tactical electronic warfare, uh, having that jammer that can go in with the strike uh, rather than standoff jamming, which is what the, the Navy and Air Force were, were doing at the time. Um, so that's, that's one I have a particular interest in. Uh, and sort of related to that, we, we do have a, an EF-10, which was um, sort of predecessor to that. Uh, we have that in the collection and not currently on display. Um, you know, hoping, hoping we can eventually get that uh, uh, restored and put out somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, there's just... What, what are some not... So someone's a, a first-time visitor to the museum, an aviation junkie. What are some not miss... Things they should not miss. What should they see? Uh, well, I mean, you, you have to start out with, uh, you know, the Leatherneck Gallery, the atrium when you walk in the building, and there are a lot of aircraft in there. So we've got a... Uh, uh, JN Jenny, uh, I believe it's a four. Yeah, I think that. Um, that, uh, you know, sort of represents the, the Marine Corps early efforts, not the earliest, but, um, you know, by the time the U.S. does get into the war in 1917, uh, Marines are flying these down in uh, Miami at the training field right. uh, in order to prepare themselves to uh, go over to Europe and fly DH-4s. Um, and then, uh, you know, when, when the U.S. gets out of the war, um, it's, it jennies, these jennies are the land planes that get sent down into uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, and so they're, they're really establishing that early um, Marine Corps air ground uh, team in the Caribbean. So... You know, that's, that's a, a significant airplane, um, but, uh, you know, we've got um, two Corsairs, uh, NF4U, um, and then the later AU, which is, looks the same, but it's uh, uh, redesignated as an attack aircraft. Um, we've got uh, a, a Harrier, um, which, again, is something that, that the Marine Corps really pushed for to get that uh, forward aviation presence and operating out of the forward base. Um, the um, HUS, uh, UH-34D, is one of the complicated things that sort of straddles the tri-service uh, unified designation system in 1962. Um, but we, we've got that on display that's, uh, you know, significant... Helicopters. It's not the first marine transport helicopter, but it's the first one that can really do what it says on the label um, and actually transport a significant amount of weight. Um, and that becomes the, the first marine aircraft sent into uh, Vietnam. Yeah, um, and you actually wrote an article about that one here pretty recently. I, I did. Um, um, so I didn't realize, I guess, that... Uh, so that happened in about 2017. So you, you kind of came in after the fact. So how how do you catch up to what the museum's been up to when you come on board? I guess. 
Um, uh, yeah, really, it's a lot of uh, spot fires. I learn by dealing with whatever thing I'm asked to deal with next. Um, so, you know, I was, I was uh, encouraged to write something about that. Um, you know, for the, the museum's blog and, and something, something that uh, looked a little bit more about the, the history of that particular aircraft mm -hmm. and particularly how it, how it came to be in the museum, um, as opposed to my, my predecessor as the aviation curator had also written something uh, a couple of years ago, but that was a little bit more broadly based on, you know, the significance of the HUS overall. Um, so yeah, things like that come up, and I say, okay, well, I've I've got to research what what is the significance of this aircraft, uh, you know, as a representative of the type, but also this particular one, and what mm -hmm. is its history, uh, and really kind of dig into that. So and that one, just so that our listeners know, was uh, recovered by uh, an association that had been in the flight group, right? That. Uh, yeah, so it was it was uh, people that were associated with uh, the squadron three sixty six. Um, three sixty one. Three sixty one. I wrote it down. So oh, good, thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah, so a Marine Helicopter Squadron uh, three sixty one Veterans Association, I think, is the the formal title. And uh, you know, this is another thing that when when that. Um, you know that that squadron had been uh, uh, a light helicopter squadron, and then it got redesignated in Vietnam as a medium helicopter squadron. Um, so the Vets Association just called it Helicopter Squadron. Um, That's an but, original uh, title. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, you know they had they had been looking to find and restore to um, flight status um, an old. HUS UH-34, um, and in in the process of looking around, uh, found this one, and uh, you know picked it because it was in the best shape of, of all that they had seen. Um, I mean that said, it still needed a lot of work, uh, but it was it was really only after they had decided to buy that that they they looked it up and realized oh no this airframe had actually served in their squadron twice in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's neat. Um, so it, it did have that connection. Yeah, and they put 40,000 hours into it or whatever. At then, least, uh, at least. The guy who was yeah. running it said he stopped counting at 40,000. Wow, <laughs> wow. And and the, the HUS, if I can transition us, was the type aircraft used in the very early days of the Mercury space program, which leads me into talking about the newest temporary exhibit at the museum. Can you talk about both that aircraft type in those early days and also the new exhibit? Right. Uh, so the, the new exhibit, the Space Flight Gallery, looks at um, Marines in space, basically. Uh, you know, Marines who, uh, you know, either in addition to their Marine career or after their Marine career um, had gotten involved uh, with NASA as astronauts and, and gone into space. Um, and this story of the, the UH-34 um, and uh, uh, 
uh, Light Helicopter Transport Squadron 262 um, is sort of the one exception. Here we have Marines involved in the space program who did not go into space. Right. Uh, but they did end up recovering um, uh, Shepard and Gus Grissom. Um, and this was something that sort of fell to the Marines because initially uh, NASA had asked the Navy to do this, and the Navy said, well, uh, you know, we, we can't really spare the people and equipment. Um, and so it, it sort of fell to the Marine Corps who said, yeah, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll figure something out. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the plan was to, um, you know, once the, spa once the capsule had, had splashed down, the helicopters would have, you know, the ships would have been tracking it on its way down. They would have directed the helicopters to landing zones so they could be right there. Um, the helicopter could hook onto the space capsule. Um, the astronaut would then uh, blow the hatch, get out, and be lifted up, interestingly, into the same helicopter that was already carrying the, the space capsule. Um, and uh, there were, and, and then uh, the helicopter then would carry both astronaut and capsule back to the mothership. Um, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> they only did it twice. They so. did. They only did it twice. Uh, yeah, so they only yeah. did it twice. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they, they did it with um, Shepard. And that went okay. And, and again, one of the interesting things is that although um, you know the HUS could carry a lot, uh, the capsule and astronaut was really at the limit of what they could carry. And so, uh, whereas they would normally have a crew of pilot, co-pilot, and crew chief, they went without the crew chief, which meant that the co-pilot, once they got in place, had to come down out of the cockpit, which was a, you know a, a short ladder down. Um, and then he was the one who actually right. uh, hooked up to the capsule and then dropped the, um, uh, the flotation ring to the astronaut. So Shepard went well. They came back again and did it with Grissom. Um, it's a you know sort of well-known story in the space history community. Grissom's hatch blew before they could get the capsule hooked up. And at the time... Some people accused him of, of panicking and blowing it early. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, you know research has been done since then, and especially with finding um, the capsule, right. uh, that that button, I think, was not pressed. Well, and that erroneous information went far and wide as a result of Tom it, Wolfe's it book, The Right Stuff. And it's my understanding that the Mercury astronauts who who were colleagues of Grissom were livid about that mm -hmm. um, because they, they knew that simply wasn't the case. And there's no way that Grissom would have remained in the flight rotation for Gemini and Apollo mm -hmm. had he, had he screwed up as mm -hmm. the, as the yeah, story no, went. All of, all of the other Mercury seven were on his side that, that this was a, a problem with the hatch. Um, but it was, it was that, issue because um you know the hatch blew early water started getting into the capsule uh, grissom got out of the capsule but uh, before he was completely ready and so he was supposed to have inflated a a collar in his spacesuit um once he had taken the helmet off to make sure that water didn't get in the spacesuit when he got out 
and because he had he had you know evacuated so urgently he hadn't done that so he's out in the water uh water is starting to get into his suit dragging him down the helicopter is trying to hook onto the space capsule and eventually lift it hoping that you know once they get the hatch out of the water hopefully enough water can drain that they can do that um and uh you know, they, they do not, they get a, an engine warning light um, that their engine might soon just be stopping, basically, flying apart. Um, and so they, they cut that loose. Unfortunately, there was a, a backup helicopter that ends up coming in and, and rescuing Grissom. But that whole episode then leads to NASA changing the way in which they do recoveries. And from then on, um, the, uh, the 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 capsule will basically be recovered by a ship. The ship, right? Uh, you know, so the helicopters will still be there. They will put down, um, you know, rescue swimmers. They'll do flotation collars. They'll be there to help out with you know any emergencies that come up. Um, but basically, the ship is expected to be close enough to come in and hook up directly. And then once the capsule is on deck that's when the astronauts will get out. Um, and so with that, uh, the, the need for the particular skills that have been developed by this uh, helicopter squadron really are not needed anymore. Uh, on top of that, the, the Navy uh, has begun to bring in its new helicopter, uh, I believe it was the S-3, uh, which did actually have a, a greater lift capacity than the UH-34. Uh, so if they were going to continue doing, uh, you know, recovering capsules with the helicopters, there was a, a better helicopter now available. And I think maybe the Navy recognized, you know, no, we'll, we'll get some good PR out of out of doing this. Right. <laughs> well, and you have at the in that space flight exhibit, you've got some artifacts from from the Shepard recovery, correct? Right. So we we do have the uh, the the flotation collar. They call it a, a horse collar. And if you've ever seen a horse collar, and if you look at this thing, you'll you'll see the visual similarities. Um, but uh, this is basically a, a collar that was lowered to the astronaut, who then put his his head and arms through it uh, to provide a, a solid purchase of sling, basically to allow him to be lifted. Uh, so we've got that. Uh, we have one of the smaller, the smaller of the two tools that we have in the collection, um, which is a, a sort of a shepherd's crook thing, and um, you know that that has been one of my frustrations is trying to figure out exactly what that was used for, um, because my first thought on seeing it was, oh, this is what they used to hook up to the capsule, but we actually have that pole in the collection, that's much longer and has a, a detachable clip hook on the end. Um, and so, you know, this one with the, the fixed um, shepherd's crook and um, I'm guessing was probably just for, uh, you know, grabbing things, maybe helping to steady the, the cable as they were lifting. Um, but uh, yeah, it's one of the things we don't have a lot of information about in the uh, in, in the records. And since it was only, uh, they were only recovered that way for two missions, it's a very, I think it's a little known piece of that space history. Mm -hmm. And, and unfortunately the 
co-pilot slash crew chief who did both of those astronaut recoveries recently passed away and, um, you know, may have taken that information with him. Um, it's, it's entirely possible, yes. Um, you know, this, this was one of the things that even the, even the squadron, the entire squadron was not involved with right. this. They had, uh, they basically took volunteers, but the rest of the squadron was busy working up, getting ready to be deployed to Vietnam. It was, it was just a regular part of their, of their everyday, you know, this was in addition to what they were doing, like you mm -hmm. said. And, um, um, evidently some of the pilots were not interested in doing that mission. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of them didn't like, they've. According to one of the pilots I spoke to, he said that they did not enjoy that that process because you had to hover so close to the water, and um, they just actually didn't yeah. enjoy. Right, that and they mission. came up. They had to develop it all pretty quickly. They did. They did. They um, had to come up with scratch the whole thing. on their own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. With the information that they were getting from, which was constantly yeah. changing to right, include yeah. the weight. Right, that was constantly changing. One of the one of the fascinating things that um, you know I discovered, which I think came from your story in Leatherneck, Nancy, was that uh, you know so one of the things was when the the capsule landed uh, that there would be a, a a rescue radio to allow the astronaut to be in contact with. Um, you know, the, the, the helicopter and the rescue ship. Um, and the initial plan for this was that it was going to be uh, the, you know, the astronaut would flip a switch and it would deploy a balloon, which would lift up an antenna wire. And, uh, you know, obviously wires in the air are not a good thing for helicopters. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, so they knew that, that once they got close, before they could pick them up, they would have to get rid of this. And, you know, Marines being Marines, I think, said, well, what if we just shoot down the balloon? That's right. Uh, <laughs> so they started practicing with shotguns. They and did. Apparently we're getting really good at, at it when NASA came back and said, yeah, we've changed our mind. It's going to be uh, uh, an extendable uh, whip antenna, um, at which point they then had to sort of refigure what they were doing with that. Uh, and so the, the third tool that was used that we apparently do not have um, was uh, – basically an, an explosively triggered um, clipper. So another long pole with two sharpened blades on the end of it, um, and that you know co-pilot uh, would have to maneuver that around the base of the whip antenna and trigger the explosive and cut that off uh, because that was long enough that it could interfere with, uh, with the helicopter and the lift. When I first stumbled across that little nugget about them using shotguns mm -hmm. to shoot that off, I th I thought it was a a joke, like th that <laughs> that it or that it was not true, and so I did a follow up interview with Wayne Coons, who was the project manager from the squadron, and I asked him. I said, D "Did you guys really do that?" And he's, "Oh yeah, we sure did. We were just getting good. We were just getting good." And they said, "We're not doing that anymore." Um, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. They were going to just take a shotgun with him in the helicopter and, and you know, I, you Marines. Know, I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. reading that, and I, I could I could feel the disappointment. I'm, I'm sure these guys were excited to be like, <laughs> hey, look what we get to do. Yeah, like this is a new part of our duty day. We have yeah. to practice with the shotguns. Yeah. So, we have uh, to be able to hit the balloon without hitting the capsule. <laughs> or the helicopter. <laughs> or the helicopter. <laughs> or the astronaut. So... Uh -huh. um, well, okay, so that that actually brings me to another question I have for you. I, I touched on it a little bit earlier, but 
colorful characters in Marine Corps Aviation. Do you have any favorite colorful characters? I've got one. If you don't mind, I will start us off. And, okay. and that is Chris McGee. Are you are you familiar with Chris McGee's history at all? I'm I'm afraid I am not. Okay, he was he was one of the black sheep, of course, air pilots, and um, I think he was I think I he was an ace in the squadron. I didn't go back and look up his his history, but what's more colorful about him is his post Marine Corps career. In 1948, he then volunteered as a mercenary for the fledgling. Israeli Air Force flew missions with the 101 Squadron in in the 1948 War for Independence. And then later, being a complete adrenaline junkie, he robbed a bank. He committed armed robbery and went to jail, served his time. And it, it is my understanding um, from my father-in-law, who served with him in the 101 Squadron in Israel, that his buddies from from the 101 squadron threw him a get out of jail party when he was released <laughs> but he he just was such an adrenaline junkie he missed it so much and he was also interestingly the cousin of John Gillespie McGee author of the famed poem High Flight so I, that's that's my favorite marine corps aviator follow that up follow that <laughs> Top up that so um yeah, and and this this gets into the issue with with you know space flight and having to, to pick things up on the go, um, is that you know my dissertation, as I said before, looks at the period from you know, 1908 ish, um, and i you know my research went up to 1926, so I'm very familiar with the First World War period and what's going on in the the early interwar period. And, you know, my, my top-of-the-brain knowledge kind of fades off after that. So, <laughs> um, you know, my favorites are in this early period, um, and uh, particularly uh, Alfred A. Cunningham. Oh, yeah. Who is not just the, the first Marine Corps aviator. He's kind of the reason that uh, Marine Corps aviation exists he at is. all. Um, and um, he uh, actually served in uh, the, the Army. Um, I, I think he was with uh, Georgia Infantry, something like that, in uh, the Spanish-American War. Um, and then when the war was over, he got out, and he's serving for a while as a, um, a real estate agent um, <laughs> in Atlanta, I think. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things where the, the traveling aviator comes to town with his balloon and he's giving tethered balloon rides. He'll take people up and, and come back down. Um, Cunningham apparently takes one of these rides and is absolutely fascinated with wow. aviation. Um, which, interestingly, leads him to join the Marines, uh, which, you know, this, this is, uh, what does he join? 1909, I think. Um, which, uh, is it 1911? Um, I mean, the, the Navy only gets its first airplane in 1911. Um, so, you know, why he decides that the Marines will be a good place to go to fly airplanes, I'm not sure. Um, and 
we may never find that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and wasn't his wife opposed to him going into uh, aviation? He, he was, uh, or she was rather. So um, yeah, so he he ultimately gets to um, the uh, advanced base defense school in Philadelphia and call it a school but it's really the forces because this is something that the marines are just standing up and again just trying to figure out okay what what do we need to do this job which right. is to hold um you know take unopposed and hold um a forward um harbor that the navy can then use to refuel and rearm before it goes into conflict in the event of another war, um, which is anticipated will happen on the far side of the Pacific somewhere. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we see here the beginnings of what will eventually be the am amphibious doctrine in World War II. But um, he's involved with this. He also gets involved with and possibly even helps found uh, the Aero Club of Philadelphia, and uh, something I only just recently learned, he gets uh, the wealthy businessman of the Aero Club of Philadelphia to start pestering uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps to assign airplanes to the, the school. Oh, wow. And the, the landing forces. A little bit of politics there. And a little bit of politicking, yes. Um, uh, like I said, I, I only found about this uh, out about this recently. And in fact, I'm, I'm going to be doing research this afternoon to sort of uh, learn more about this part of the story. Sounds like a great article for uh, Leatherneck. But reportedly, uh, the, the commandant finally calls into his office and says, you know, finds out that, that Cunningham is behind this and calls him on the carpet and says, look, uh, I know this is you doing this. Will you <laughs> stop having them send me letters <laughs> if I assign you to aviation? Uh, and, and he agrees, so he writes one more sort of formal proposal um, which is all I had known about before, uh, for how these airplanes should be used basically um, for uh, reconnaissance, the role of cavalry that the, the Marine Corps does not have. Um, and that this idea of the airplane as cavalry is something that, that shows up a lot in this period. Um, although it's, it's another one of the interesting things that uh, the Navy is frequently telling other Navy officers that, hey, we can use airplanes like the Army uses cavalry, and the Army is telling other Army officers, hey, we can use airplanes like the Navy uses scout cruisers. Um, so I, I, I think that's a matter of trying to present them with something a little bit unfamiliar to make them really think about it, as opposed to, uh, you know, if the Army says, oh, hey, we can use them like cavalry, and the cavalry guys are saying, hey, we're here. Why not just use us? Right. Um, you know. Likewise with the the Navy and the Scout cruisers. Um, but he he does get assigned, and the uh, you know Marine Corps has no money for airplanes, but uh, the Navy is willing to take uh, Marine aviators for training. And so uh, Cunningham and um, uh, Barney Smith right. uh, are the first who are assigned. Cunningham is the first to arrive. And Marine Aviation dates its birthday to the date that he reports to um, the, the Navy Flight Training School, which I think was in Annapolis at that point. It yes. moved around a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he 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 gets trained and he's flying, and then um, 
you know, decides to get married and his fiance says, you know, it's, it's either flying or me. <laughs> And, never a good uh, move. Yeah, never a good thing. Um, and you know, this is this is something else that fascinates me about this period is the assumption that um, uh, you know that that uh, flying is something only for uh, you know young male reckless daredevils, and they should not be married because then they'll leave somebody behind if they're if they're if they die in a crash. Um, but. Uh, he, uh, he uh, Cunningham actually continues to be influential in aviation. He goes to work on the Commandant staff here in, in D.C. Um, and continues to guide aviation. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he convinces his wife that flying isn't as dangerous as all that and is able to come back. He does have to go through training again because the, um, you know, it, it has changed so much in the couple of years since he was flying. Uh, and of course, he needs to. Something that was, I don't think, was recognized at the time was the um, uh, the the problem that uh, flying is a skill that you really need to maintain. Sure. Uh, that if you're away from it too long, right, you really need to be eased back into it. You can't just jump back in the saddle. Um, well, you can, but you might end up on the ground. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, you know, so he, he does have to go through training again, um, but, you know, once again becomes, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, well, like I said, he's always been kind of the guiding uh, idea behind right. Marine Corps aviation. He's just doing it once again from the cockpit rather than the, uh, the commandant's office. Um, you know, and so he uh, really kind of force of personality um, when the, when the, the U.S. does start getting close to getting into the war, um, and, you know, of course, after April 1917, and he is bound and determined to show what aviation can do for the Marine Corps. And uh, he talks to his counterparts in Army aviation and thinks he has an agreement with the Army to send his squadron over to northern France to support uh, the the Marine Brigade that is forming over there, and the Army agrees to training, but then uh, Cunningham finds out that well, no. Once his guys are trained, uh, what the Army really needs is more flight instructors. So the Army intention is they're going to break up Cunningham's squadron and distribute them to other uh, Army Air Corps or Ar Army was it at the time Army Air Service. Um, training centers, um, which which is almost what happens to uh, a Navy group as well, the first Yale unit. Um, oh, wow. But uh, it, because the, the Navy's in a similar position, that their their greatest need actually is to train more pilots. Um, and uh, But any in any event, Cunningham is, is not happy with this. Uh, he is told that even if they do get overseas, even if he does get a squadron over to France, the squadron will not be... Uh, assigned to the front lines, it will not be supporting uh, the the Marines on the front lines, and this is this is not just inter-service, um, you know, trying to trying to stick it to right, the Marines. Right. Um, <clears throat> as I said, the Army itself was having problems. It did not have nearly enough squadrons on the front line at any point during the war, and there was just no way that they could permanently assign a squadron to a, a brigade much less a division or even a corps. 
Um, so that, you know, the army had, uh, you know, divisions and corps rotating in and out of the front, but the army aviation squadrons never got rotated off because they didn't have enough aviators. So, um, you know, as I said, this was not, um, you know, the screw you to Cunningham and the Marines. Uh, although I think Cunningham took it that way. <laughs> Um, and immediately goes out looking, said he's bound and determined to get his guys into combat in France. And, uh, you know, it goes to France on an inspection tour, but with the secondary role of, I'm going to find something we can do that is a Marine mission. Oh, good. Um, <coughs> and, uh, you know, he ends up meeting up with uh, some uh, a couple of... Um, Royal Naval Air Service uh, people who I, I don't think get enough recognition for what they did because their ideas are really kind of later taken over by uh, Hugh Trenchard. Um, but uh, a couple of RNAS guys, uh, Gray and oh, I forget the captain's name off the top of my head. Um, but uh, they are running an operation. They're trying to put together squadrons to bomb um, – German U-boat bases in occupied ports in Belgium. Oh. Um, something that pops up again in World War II. Yeah. Um, and uh, there, it, it's really surprising the similarities uh, between the two, except for the fact that in World War II, the, 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 well, it's unified RAF at that point, and then when the Army Air Forces come into service, the AAF says, no, we're going to do this. It's not going to be a Navy mission this time. Um, but Cunningham sees this. He comes up with the idea of, okay, Navy bombers will attack. Marines will fly protection cover. And he comes back to the U.S. and he starts organizing forces uh, to get all of this together. In the meantime, there's a Navy guy, one of these guys from the first Yale unit that I mentioned. Um, you know, and these guys are all from wealthy families. He happens to come from a family uh, that was heavily involved in railroading. And so he's, he's doing uh, sort of a study of U-boat um, operations okay. and realizes that U-boats probably have the same issue that steam engines have, which is that they need a lot of maintenance. And so if you're going to have one steam engine out on the line, you actually need you know one more that's ready to take its place and another one that's being repaired. Um, so you, you've actually got a lot more uh, steam engines in the yard than you have out on the lines. And he figures probably the same thing is true for U-boats. So let's bomb the U-boat maintenance pens. Um, Interesting. And he sells this to William Sims, who's head of uh, naval forces in Europe at the time. About the same time that uh, the Navy Department sends this letter to Sims saying, hey, uh, this Marine organization is getting together, uh, you know, squadrons to defend Navy bombers. Um, please start preparing for them. And Sims kind of says, well, this is kind of the same thing. Not exactly, um, but it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's enough. Let's, let's bring these Marine guys into this. Uh, you know, and he kind of massages this, and it ends up being, okay, well, Long story short, that the, the Marines, rather than flying fighters, will now fly day bombers. Uh, they'll bomb during the day, 
Navy squadrons will fly <coughs> will fly the big night bombers, uh, and they will attack at night. So you got the Marine Day Wing and the Navy Night Wing of what becomes the Northern Bombing Group, um, which wing and group, for whatever reason, is reversed from the way everyone else was using them. <laughs> um, but uh, it, basically, this Northern Bombing Group takes over what these now RAF officers were trying to do. Sure. Um, and this is you know another case where U.S. forces come in uh, and jump on something that the Europeans were, were trying to put together, but at this point in the war don't have the resources for. Um, so there was, there was a lot of, well, we'll kind of leave this to the Americans. Um, Gray actually continues being a, a significant um, uh, advisor to this, this group. Um, and, uh, you know, ha having said that, there is the problem getting resources to northern France. Uh, so, in fact, um, the, the Marine Day Wing doesn't get aircraft uh, until July 1918. They get over there in, in uh, February or March 1918, I think. Um, and they've got to wait a couple of months before they can get any airplanes. By the end of the war, they've really only got a little bit more than one squadron's worth of planes. Um, you know, things are sort of still getting set up. Um, but, uh, you know, Cunningham, as I said, is bound and determined to get them in. Uh, before they start getting airplanes, he negotiates with, again, his, his friends in what's now the RAF um, to have Marines cycle through. RAF bombing squadrons flying the DH-4, so they can get experience flying the aircraft in combat, uh, you know, as part of a, a an attack group. Um, and uh, when the planes do start showing up one at a time, mm -hmm. they actually continue flying. Now they're flying American planes with the RAF, and then eventually they've got enough planes that they can fly their own. Um, and then when the war is over, Cunningham realizes that it, he doesn't want his guys stuck in Europe. Um, just sort of languishing, and again, really fights to get them transported back to the U.S. as soon as possible. And again, when he comes back, he, he's been kind of running aviation in Washington remotely through mm -hmm. a, a junior officer that he's friends with. Um, but uh, he comes back, he does take over that uh, senior aviation position in Washington again. And then immediately sends out squadrons to support the Marines who are already on the ground in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And so, you know, just throughout this period, it, it, he's really driving what Marine Corps aviation is doing, what it can be, what it should be. Um, and then in the 1920s, when he is bumped out of the, the senior chair, he's rotated out um, and into uh, command in the field. Um, that idea is pretty much set at that point, um, you know. And, and Cunningham says in 1920, uh, in a uh, uh, article that he wrote, um, that uh, you know the only purpose for marine aviation is to assist the marine on the ground, and that has something that is is still true today. Um, you know, that's that's the sort of central ethos right. of marine aviation. He really so. was a visionary. Yeah. I guess he helped because uh, when I think of that early marine aviation, I think of how experimental they were, especially in the Caribbean and Central America, mm -hmm. when they were doing all sorts of stuff from like figuring out how to run messages like with like 
catch wires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, dropping pamphlets and uh, just whatever they could use a plane to do. They were trying to make it, trying to figure out a way to do it. And um, that kind of just goes, I guess, to trying to find something to do in World War One. So, yeah, yeah, uh, no, and that, you know, I I think that comes back to the you know the sort of Marines attitude of well, we've got this tool, what can we do with mm-hmm. it? Um, and you know, the 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 guys that get down to the Caribbean are the the guys, mostly the guys that were in Europe, and um, you know, are, again, are are sensitive to this issue of apparently some of the Marines. Uh, you know, in the 4th Brigade, came back and were like, well, you know, we never saw you over there. How come you weren't flying over us? Um, and so there, there does seem to be this sensitivity uh, with Cunningham and, and some of the other uh, senior officers after the war to, no, we need to, we need to overcome this attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, our not being over your head in the trenches was not our fault. Let us show you what we can do. Um, and so it, it is, you know, you, you get into the, the Caribbean and it is a lot of, well, what can we do? And, yeah. you know, not just from the aviators, but from the, the commanders running them, what can you do? And they end up trying to do everything. Um, you know, like you said, uh, messages, um, you know, we, we do have a, a diorama in the museum of a, a DH-4B, um, with this message pickup system, mm-hmm. Um, because radios are still very heavy and um, not especially reliable, and too heavy. You know, the the idea of the backpack radio is still years in the future. Uh, the ground troops are not lugging heavy radio sets yeah. through the uh, the they're jungle. They're pulling so them with mules, a, I think. right? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, so they, there got to be yeah. other ways to do this. But uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, reconnaissance uh, liaison. Um, basic transportation, mm-hmm. um, familiarization flights. Uh, you know, new ground officers are being assigned down there, and one of the things the aviators do is take them up and fly them over the terrain, saying this is where you'll be fighting, uh, you know, giving you a, a literal overview of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, like I said, that's the point where the Marine Air Ground team really begins to gel, uh, and both sides begin to say, hey, can you do this? I don't know. Let's try Let's it. Try. That's that's pretty <laughs> neat. That's pretty neat. So uh, you have a book published. Uh, where what's its uh, title? What's it about? And then where can uh, our dear listeners uh, buy multiple copies of it and give it out to their <laughs> friends and family? <laughs> yes, please buy copies. <coughs> uh, the book is called At the Dawn of Air Power, uh, and as I said, it's it's kind of the first half of my dissertation. Uh, it, it has been edited down significantly. Uh, so readers need not panic. Um, <laughs> potential readers, I should say. Um, but it, it, as I said, it's basically looking at uh, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps from 1907, 1908 uh, through the beginning of 1917, just before the U.S. gets into the war. Um, because as I, as I discovered in doing the dissertation, uh, U.S. entry into the war is just a real discontinuity. Everything changes. Everything that happened before then is kind of thrown out in the needs of trying to get caught up to what's going on in Europe. So, um, you know, this this is what was going on. Even if everything was thrown out, what was going on? Um, and, you know, like I said, back to that question of not just how did they convince Congress to buy the first one or even the second one because funding actually is a, a big issue. 
Um, and something that, that uh, some of the reviews I've seen so far have picked up on uh, the probably urban legend that I came across where uh, when the Army in 1913 was asking for money to buy more airplanes, uh, an, an unnamed senator reportedly said, uh, you know, why all this talk about money for airplanes? I thought we already had one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, whether, whether it's true or not, uh, it may just be apocryphal. It may be, you know, sense of the times. Um, but funding continued to be an issue where, uh, you know, Congress and even the, even the military didn't really think about what was needed for maintenance, especially early on when uh, so many flights ended in some sort of crash that needed to be fixed. I'm stealing that line, by the way. (laughs) Well, it's also, like, politically at the time, there's a lot of uh, economic uh, pulling back, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, this is the time of, like, uh, as the jungle's getting written and a bunch of this other, like, capitalism gone wild stuff. So I think that uh, the government was reluctant to try and spend on new stuff at that time anyway. So It, it, it yeah. was, uh, you know, and so the you know, aviation finds itself fighting for the biggest slice it can get of a very mm-hmm. small pie that the, you know, the government is, is looking to, uh, you know, keep spending low. Um, and it, especially once things begin to heat up in Europe, uh, you know, even before open war starts in 1914, um, you know, famously, uh, Wilson is isolationist. Uh, and in fact, he orders the military not to even think about preparing for what happens if the U.S. gets into this war, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, one of the issues why everything changes so dramatically. Um, but uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's that. It's continuing to get the forces they need, the people they need, um, but also just trying to figure out, okay, it, it's one thing to say we're going to use the airplane for reconnaissance. There are a lot of details that have to be figured out before that is a deployable mm-hmm. tool. Uh, how many airplanes do you need? How many pilots do you need for those airplanes? How many mechanics do you need to keep those airplanes flying? Where, How big a unit do you need? Yeah. Uh, how are you going to distribute them? Are they going to be under the command of whatever unit you distribute them to, or are they going to remain under a centralized command? Um, it, a lot of details. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and it, it's one of the things that you know. Again, airplane technology at the time, even into 1913, 1914, um, airplanes still just barely able to get into the air with two people. Um, and in fact, when they're running tests with uh, uh, radios, for instance, um, the the pilot has to run the radio too because they can't carry a second person. Mm-hmm. Wow! Um, you know, uh, when the the army is is testing a, a bomb site, uh, they're deliberately choosing the lightest pilot so that the inventor of the bomb site can test this. Uh, and then when when the inventor decides he wants to see how somebody who's just been trained in this bomb site does. Uh, he actually finds not a pilot, it's a, a sergeant, uh, because he is the latest person in camp <laughs> um, and, and, you know, sent up to do this. Um, so, you know, uh, there are these experiments with making the airplane a, a, an offensive weapon, but it's really just dabbling. Um, and the, 
you know, the services never really follow up with this. By 1916, when the Army sends uh, the, the first Aero Squadron down to uh, Mexico to support the um, punitive expedition, uh, the, the guy in charge of the, uh, in command of the unit asked Army's uh, Ordnance Corps for bombs and machine guns for these airplanes, and he never gets them. The uh, Ordnance Corps hasn't been looking at this. They're not ready well. to, to mm. deploy this. Um, in the same way, in, in uh, I think it's a 1914 or 1915 uh, winter fleet, uh, 1915 uh, winter fleet exercises, um, you know, the Navy aviators are asked by the commander of the fleet, um, you know, okay, I want you to test these things. I want you to test a uh, firing machine gun. I want you to test, um, you know, aerial photography. Um, I want you to test, uh, you know, launching and recovering uh, aircraft from your ship. And uh, the, the problem is that the technology at the time, the, the commander of the aviation unit, um, his ship is actually in between catapults. They're waiting to get a new one installed, so they can't do the la test launch. He's only got one airplane he's comfortable firing a machine gun from, and that <laughs> crashes yeah. early on, and they can't repair it on site. Um, they, they don't have suitable cameras to do this. Um, they, they basically fail on every count. And wow. it's, it, you know, it's because part of it is just this experimental technology. Um, part of it is that these other ancillary things just haven't really been developed yet. Um, you know, the idea is there. And it is one of the, you know, the curious what ifs that, uh, you know, if the U.S. had not gotten into the war in 1917, what does that look like? Right. Uh, you know, how do they develop? Um, so, you know, that's that's what I'm looking at in the book is is this period. What's going on? Why are these decisions being made? Who's guiding them? Interesting. And, um, you know, the, the, the sort of tool that I'm using for this is this academic theory called actor network theory, which I won't get into. Um, and I, I try not to get into too much in the book uh, because I did want it to be accessible to, um, you know, to the average reader, um, as well as hopefully the academics. Um, but uh, it, it's this idea that, that you're looking for networks and you don't go in with the idea of, oh, I think this kind of network exists, let me look for evidence of it. It's uh, sort of following the ant trails. Uh, you know, you're, you're looking at who are people talking to? What are the connections that result in change happening? Um, and, you know, how, how stable are those? Who's involved? Are there multiple people involved? What do those networks look like? Uh, you're, you're basically following, following the people. Um, you know, if I can do another analogy, if you if you go to uh, I think it's the FlightAware website where you can track yes. individual flights. I am familiar with that. Um, you know, so that way, you know, you might know where that airplane is supposed to be going, but if you don't know anything about uh, you know the air transport navigation system, you know, you see it making these turns, and and you know, why is it flying west when it's headed north? Um, you know. If you know about the, the transport system and you know that just the way it's developed and, you know, air, aircraft are flying in these uh, uh, set corridors uh, at, at high altitude across country and internationally. And so, you, you know, you'll see that all these airplanes are flying the same, quote, road in the sky when there is no real road. 
Um, you know, but that's the sort of thing that, that this is. You're looking at where do these things go and figuring out what is the network based on the paths they've taken. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking at that and, you know, my, my conclusion in the, in the dissertation uh, which, as I said, went uh, you know a little bit longer. Was that it, it really depended on um, trying to connect the guys actually flying, the guys that are elbow deep in the technology, and really have a good sense of what's possible now and in the near future, with the very senior guys who are uh, you know controlling budgets, who have that internal political influence to make things happen. Um, and that was, that was one of the actual surprising things when I, I had to write a new conclusion for the book, is that, oh, wait, that doesn't really happen in this period for a variety of reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if, if you look, you know, and, and other historians have said, you know, if you look at, at where... U.S. Avi military aviation is in 1917 versus what's going on in Europe, and the U.S. is way behind. And why is the U.S. way behind? Um, you know, and I, I tried not to approach it with that question of, okay, in 1917 the U.S. will be way behind. Why? I was just trying to look at, okay, what what does happen? How does it advance? What what are they doing? Um, and uh, you know, in some ways. They are approaching where most of the European Air Forces were at the beginning of 1914 when they went in. Uh, it's just that Europe has had several years to develop technology, tactics, I doctrine. Um, that the U.S. has been observing, but that hasn't really filtered down to action. Um, All right. I like so that's kind of what, I'm, like what I'm looking at in the book. So that is At the Dawn of Air Power. The U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps approach to the airplane, 1907 to 1917. Check it out. Also, check out Dr. Burke, Dr. Larry Burke, at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. And I uh, just wanted to, we've had an awesome time with you, uh, doctor. Um, does anybody have any final questions? I, I do. I have one follow-up question, just rapid fire. Okay. What do you have, if anything, that you could talk about on your wish list for the museum wish list for the museum um i i think probably has to remain on the wish list we we do not have a lot in the aviation collection from world war one and the pre-war period uh in fact we we don't have a lot in the interwar period either um not surprisingly perhaps we've got a lot of world war ii stuff sure um, we are we are starting to get some Korean War era things. We're starting to get more uh, uh, Vietnam era things. Um, just the beginning of getting things from uh, you know Desert Storm, OIF, OEF. Um, we do have a few things from that. Um, most of which are are actually going to be out on display when we open the new uh, galleries. Uh, hopefully, I, I believe that's scheduled for 2025. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, if any visitors want to come over, we actually have a, a second floor overlook. You can look in yes. and see the work that's being done. It's amazing to look uh, look Which is, that. I think, a, a, you know, a really neat opportunity, um, you know, for the, the general public to come in and see, okay, it's, it's not open yet, 
but this is where we are. You can get a sense for what it's going to look like. And here's what goes into creating something mm -hmm. of that nature. Incredible to look at, yeah. So if any of our list, dear listeners here have any uh, artifacts from World War One relating to Marine Corps aviation or the interwar <laughs> period, please send them over to the uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps. It will be much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. So or, it's been great talking to you. just a hot lead, really, right? Just yeah. I doubt any of our dear listeners are holding on to their <laughs> you know what, priceless <laughs> cloth and wood. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I said. You, you know, just it, it probably know. has to remain a yeah. wish list. You know, it's it's one of those things. Um, you know, we we do have uh, uh, A two, which is one of the Navy's first airplanes, and um, ironically, it's not something that Cunningham was closely associated with. He was uh, more associated with the the Wright brothers' B aircraft, um, but it's a replica. Um, mm -hmm. You know, those those airplanes don't exist anymore. Right, yep. right, right, right. So, well, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. I love geeking out about airplanes, and so I have really enjoyed this and and taking a deep dive into some of this history. Thanks so much for coming on, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us about some more interesting aviation stuff. Sure. Stuff. All <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know where we were going today, and there we went. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Really enjoyed having you on. All right, everyone, we'll catch you on the flip. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.